emails. We use them this week in our in my devotional time with the, the boys. Uh, I have kids nine and seven, and it was awesome. Helped uh, think about the lesson. There was even an activity provided, which I think is so cool. So um, check out those parent emails. Uh, second thing I just want to encourage our church with is I just wanted to thank you guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you showed up to uh, the Morales on Friday night for Brian Morales, for, for the memorial for Brian Morales, rather, um, that, that was amazing. Uh, we filled this room up with people who loved uh, Brian and died in their family, and I believe it was a tremendous, tremendous encouragement to that family uh, in a difficult moment. And, you know, th- one of the things I think that we, we should be taken away from COVID and from that time of being separated is that being uh, a member of a church family is not just a nice thing or an optional thing. It really is an essential thing for the Christian life. And, and I think we should hold it much more precious. And at moments like that, you see, you know, 30 years of shared history uh, by God's grace with that family and many others here. Uh, God uses ordinary members to walk beside one another in an extraordinary way. So um, if you're not a member of a church, you don't have to join this one. We love you. Um, But we want you to join one. We want you to find a family of faith that you can walk alongside. Amen. Well, let's do this. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. 14. This is God's word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, let there be, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the fat flask and poured it over his head. There were some who had said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She is done A beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. Father, I pray you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray especially, God, that you would bring encouragement to those who need encouragement and challenge to those who need challenge through the power of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take a seat. Well, it's hard to quantify how much a relationship is worth, isn't it? Uh, We often say, you know, the closest relationships in our lives are priceless, but uh, in the holiday season, I'm sure all of you are trying to figure out, you know, is my brother-in-law a pair of socks brother-in-law, or is he a pair of new Beats headphones brother-in-law, right? Not that we're trying to quantify their value, but there are differences, and... 
And I remember one time very specifically in my life where I had to quantify the value of a particular relationship. Um, I, was, I began dating a girl who lived in, was- in the Washington, D.C. area, and I lived here in El Paso. I was going to school. I was working part-time, working kind of part-time through college, and uh, I had a very meager savings account that very slowly was accruing um, because I was super cheap, and so I, di- I didn't do anything, and I, I saved a little bit more every month, and I loved that savings account. I was very proud of my tiny savings account, and uh, I began to realize that if I really wanted to date this girl in D.C., I was going to need to uh, decrease that savings account. And so as we began dating, uh, I would buy flights out to Maryland, or I think bought her a flight here, and, and as I'm doing that, I'm starting to see my savings account not go up, but go down. And so with every, uh, every you know, month, every month or two where I would buy a ticket to Maryland, I would get a gut check for, is this relationship worth $300, you know? Is this relationship worth another $300? Is this relationship worth another, another, you know? And, and you start to, it starts to climb, the, the cost escalates, but at the same time, uh, my affection for this girl began to grow with it. And so as my savings account went down, my affection went up, and at some point, uh, now, I, and I will say, I, I wish I could say just, you know, I was just all in on this. Okay, at one point, I did have a conversation with her where I said, essentially, uh, look, uh, I am running out of money, and so I'm really wondering whether you think this is going to work out or not, which <laughs> is an endearing thing for your boyfriend to say, right? Um, you're like, and you say, you know, try to preface it. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying you're not, you know, this relationship isn't worth everything to me, et cetera, et cetera. But, but like, but like, what do you think? Like, is this trending good or bad here? And at a certain point, I really stopped caring. At a certain point, those thoughts stopped and I was just all in. And uh, by God's grace, uh, Jen said yes, she was a girl. And uh, it worked because we've been married for 13 years this week, which is awesome. Yeah. So in the end, it was a worthwhile investment, right? <laughs> like my meager group of Southwest points and monies uh, in, next to Jen, I would take Jen every time, right? Well, in this passage, in this passage, we see something unusual where people have to quantify the value of a relationship, and it's their relationship to Jesus. And the question we're going to be exploring today is, what is Jesus worth to you? If you had to put a price tag on your relationship with Jesus, what would it be? Now, I know you guys are in church, and so you're going to say something like, oh, it's priceless, it's valuable, you know. No, I want your real answer, like your Monday morning answer, okay? You're doing the budget answer. You're planning your life answer. What is Jesus worth to you? We're going to do two things today. We're going to look at this shocking act, and then we're going to look at it through the perspective of the different people involved, Okay? First, the shocking act. Now, Mark, I love Mark. I cannot wait to get to heaven to meet Mark because I was a creative writing major. I love writing. The way Mark writes is unlike anyone else in the New Testament. He has a sense of pacing and setting and putting stories together to make a point. There's a a famous... uh, construct in the Markan gospel called the Markan sandwich, which is the best term theologians could come up with, I guess, you know. Let's call it a sandwich. And so this is what happens. There's a short story and then a longer, more substantive story or teaching and then another story. And the stories bracket 
the middle story and in a sense almost sharpen the point of the middle story. Those two stories on the outside are, are pushing the same message forward that's being driven home in the middle story. In the middle of this story, the thing being driven home, the thing that Mark is underlining and he's putting in bold and he's, he's putting in italics and he's blowing up in his Microsoft Word to be as big as the page is this shocking act. Now, imagine the setting of this shocking act. Jesus is at Simon's house, right? But we don't, we don't know a lot about him, but we know one thing, which is that he was a leper. Now, he, we know he's also not a leper because you don't go to an active leper's house, okay? In other words, this is a guy who'd been healed from leprosy. And we also see in another gospel that Lazarus is there. And so this was something of a party, something of a family reunion for people that had been healed or helped by Jesus. And so you can imagine the stories that people are sharing. Oh my gosh, I used to not be able to walk and then Jesus healed me. You know, I was, I was possessed by a demon and he freed me. And, and so these people are swapping stories and it's the week of the Passover. So many are making their way into the city of Jerusalem. But in the middle of this party, at the moment where, where things had separated and the men, as traditional, would eat in one area together, a woman approaches. Now, this woman is known to many. She's Mary, the sister of Martha, if you remember that story, and the sister of Lazarus, the person that, got, that Jesus raised from the dead. And so it wasn't unusual that she would be there, but what she does is unusual. So you imagine all the men are sitting in a circle, maybe post-dinner, laughing and joking, but she enters the room, and, if, and there would be a little bit of a discomfort, like, well, why is, why is Mary coming over here? And she's carrying something in her hand. Now, what she's carrying was, according to the commentators I read this week, probably a family heirloom. Probably uh, the most valuable thing that she or her family owned. This, this nard, this ointment, this, this uh, perfume, as it were, was not found in Judea. It was, it was actually from India. So you can imagine how expensive and valuable this would be. That it would be imported to Judea through some family kind of connection. They have this, and it's in an alabaster flask. And so the, the outside of this flask would communicate whatever's inside is expensive, Right? Like there, there are sometimes those gifts, uh, I, I'm a big, like I've become again a big Apple fan and if you ever open like an app, an iPhone thing, other companies just throw the computer in a box with some like tissue paper, like you can pull it out, like, but Apple, you have to like remove the thing and then the phone is sitting there gleaming and it's a designed by Apple in California. You're like, ooh, California, right? <laughs> How exciting, you know? But when you, but you see the package, you're like, okay, this thing's expensive, right? Or if you've ever had a, bought a really expensive watch that's set right there, like this is what would have been communicated. People know as she's walking in that this thing, whatever it is, whatever is in that flask is expensive. And Mark says, he understates it a little when he says very costly. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means from later in the story that it would be an entire day's work from a kind of um, somebody who's, who's not, a, not a servant, but somebody who's not making tons of money, right? So it represents a, a big thing. Maybe you think poverty line in America or something like that. So this would have been worth $30,000 to $50,000, okay? So if you ever have an, an heirloom in your house that you're, you're worried your kids are gonna you know, bump and it's gonna fall, like this is one of those. Like you don't bring that thing out. You don't bring out the $30,000 flask to a party, and so, so Mary has this flask. She's approaching Jesus, and people would have expected that one of two things was going to happen. 
Perhaps some expected that, oh, this is going to be a great sign of honor because she's going to take the flask and maybe take one or two drops and, and anoint Jesus' head as a sign of, you know, just, you know, gratefulness or honor. Or more commonly, uh, that week of Passover, sometimes the Jews would give gifts to the poor. And so maybe people are thinking this gift is going to be given to Jesus so he can help the poor. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is unexpected. I can't believe that she would give up this heirloom. But, but you know, this is, you know, maybe Jesus helping the poor is worth it. But instead, so people may be quiet as this, as this flask is brought in, but instead, everybody in the room, if there's any conversations going on at the, at the edges of the room, will stop in an instant because she takes the flask, this is what would happen in the ancient world, takes the flask and breaks the top of it off signaling that all of it is about to be used, that not a drop will remain. And she takes it and pours it on Jesus. And the room just is silent. And as she's doing this, she is, she's probably crying tears of gratefulness and joy and love, and she pours it over Jesus and even on his feet. And one gospel says, suggests that she's wiping the, her, his feet with her hair, which is kind of the, the most, de, not, de, not debasing is not the right word, but the most humbling uh, action you could take toward somebody. And, and in a moment, you see what everybody's reaction is. Some people are speechless. Some people are shocked. Some people are, as we'll see, angry. Some people are just utterly confused. Like, what did I just say? Like, what was that? So let's look at this action through the lens of the people, the characters in the story, and what it reveals about their view of Jesus. Well, first is what the religious leaders say about Jesus. Now, we're going to do the first bracket right up above this story. This is meant to point to the same point as the story of the anointing oil. Now, you find that the, the, the chief priests and the scribes are against Jesus. So what that means is the two kind of chambers, as it were, of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, the, 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 the political uh, religious group that leads the Jewish people, uh, think about it as the Senate and the House of Representatives. Um, it says they, all of them, even among the different parties, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all the different groups that were probably represented in that group, they all agree on one thing, we've got to get rid of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, if this has been your experience in America, but it tends to be unusual for everyone in the House of Representatives and the Senate to agree on anything, right? I mean, if that ever happened, I think the news would just like stop. Like, we don't know what to do now, right? This is... It would be so unusual, and yet all of them are united against Jesus. <laughs> Oftentimes, the only times you see political unity is when you face an enemy so great that it causes you to unite together, and that's what they see in Jesus. Now, they all want different things. The Sadducees want power and glory, and they're collaborators with the Roman government. The Pharisees want kind of religious respect and popular teaching authority. But with all of their goals, Jesus is standing in their way. Here's them, here's where they want to go. Jesus is in their way. They view Jesus as an obstacle to them. Now, a few years ago, uh, actually not a few years ago, when I was a kid, I should say, um, that was not a few years ago. Uh, as a kid, my mom would often make me go do things with my granddad, her dad. He was a great guy. He was full of character. He was from the South, but loved being in the Southwest. He's from Mississippi originally. And so she would say, you're going to your granddad's house today. And you know, as a kid, you're like, I guess I am. You know, you don't have a lot of uh, authority or ability to drive yourself anywhere else, and so you'd go. And, and I remember one of the things my granddad loved to do is he would love to take his truck, an old tan F-150, 
and he loved to drive the roads between here and like in southern New Mexico farm country because my, his wife, my, my grandmother, was from uh, the Hatch area and had family out there. So he'd drive those roads. Sometimes he'd go shoot in the desert. Sometimes he'd just go to Kilburn Hole. Sometimes he'd go to Hatch and come back. And so my mom would say, you're going with your granddad to Hatch today. And I thought, I guess I am. But I wasn't happy about it. Because what I felt is that, listen, I've got a day of Legos lined up. I've got computer games. I've got this stuff. I've got stuff to play with. And you're making me give up all that. And now what's standing in the way between me and Lego time is this three-hour ride in the back of my granddad's F-150. And some days, if we're really honest, we feel that way about Jesus. Some days we're like, this is what I want to do. And Jesus stands in the way. But I've known this, where people will get into a relationship and friends will bring up, you know, I don't think this relationship really honors Christ or the person you're pursuing honors Christ and just seems clear in God's word. And, and, and yet I've seen people kind of walk away from Jesus because they feel like, listen, what I really want is over here and Jesus is standing in my way. Maybe for you, you feel that today. That's what the religious leaders think. What about Judas? What does Judas' action here say about Jesus. Now, remember, Judas was one of the 12 disciples. He would have looked very similar to all of the other disciples, doing the same stuff, listening to Jesus, following him around. But Judas had a secret. John 12, 6, John reveals that Judas was the treasurer and took, stole from the offerings given to Jesus for his own gain. Judas was a thief. Now, we don't understand everything about Judas' motives in uh, what happens in the events of Jesus' ministry and and death, but we do know this, that Judas was a thief, and in in this moment, he volunteers to betray Jesus for what? For money. So what we can surmise is that Judas followed Jesus. We don't know what exactly his motives were, but Judas following Jesus got him richer, okay? Every day that Judas followed Jesus and people brought offerings to Jesus, Judas would take them as the treasurer and steal a little bit for himself. That's what Judas did. So what does it tell us about his relationship to Jesus? Well, for Judas, Jesus was only a means to an end. Judas wasn't following Jesus, it appears, for Jesus' sake. He was following Jesus for what Jesus could bring him. And very much we can do the same thing today. That, that's, eventually my granddad realized, okay, if I offer this kid uh, something that he can't get elsewhere, then, then he'll be happy about coming with me. And so he did something amazing in my view as a kid. Uh, my parents were one of those like, parent sets that they didn't let their kids have soda. Some of you maybe are that. We love you, but it scarred me for my life. But just, you know, it's fine. Le- do what the Lord leads you to do. And so... Uh, and so he would, he'd say, listen, if you come with me, I'll let you get whatever soda you want out of the big refrigerator at the gas station and whatever candy you wanted. And all of a sudden, I'm like, all right, I'm in. I'm in. Let's do this. Right? <laughs> and the other thing he would do is somewhere along the way, he would let me buy, because he would you know, put up some targets and shoot in the desert. And when I was too young to do that, he would, he would buy me a cap gun. I don't even know if people know what cap guns are. If you're like, 12, you know, 15, you're like, what's a cap gun? You can Google it, okay? And it was a cap gun. It was just the, the hammer would hit and it would go pop, pop, right? I thought that was the coolest thing because my parents didn't want me to have guns either. So I'm getting soda, I'm getting candy, I'm getting weapons. Like, this is awesome. This is a great, great time, you know? 
But there were some times that my heart, my little heart got revealed where my granddad said, oh, we're not going to get a cap gun today. I already got you one, you know, last week. And then all of a sudden my heart would be, you know. And it's like, oh, we go to this, you know, the gas station and they don't have my the favorite soda I wanted. So I began to be grumbly and grumpy. And, and it, you could tell, I could tell looking back, there were many days I got in that F-150, not because I wanted to spend time with my granddad, but because I wanted a cap gun or a soda, right? And in the same way, that's how sometimes we can relate to Christians. I mean, to, to, to Jesus as Christians. That's the way Judas is relating to Jesus. It goes that deep where we say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Jesus. I'll get in and follow him if I can get a spouse out of it. I'm in with Jesus, and I'll follow him as long as I get a better life out of it. I'm in with Jesus as long as he can fix my kids. I'm in with Jesus if he'll help me reconcile with an estranged spouse or friend. I'll be with Jesus as long as he gives me material success. And let me just say, I know we have a number of folks that may be here for a season and then go on, and they're going to have to find another local church. And let me just urge you, uh, brothers and sisters, if the Lord moves you from this place, look for a particular thing in the teaching of the church you go to. Ask yourself this, in the teaching and life of the church here, is Jesus the prize or is Jesus a means to get the stuff? Right? Is Jesus the thing you want most, or is Jesus the thing that gets you to the thing you want most? Sadly, I think that's many of us, many times. All right, third group then, what the disciples say about Jesus. Now, before we uh, go into this, you got to remember, they're the good guys, okay? Because this, this isn't their finest moment. I know we've said that a lot in the Gospel of Mark, but this yet again is not their finest moment. These were the guys that valued Jesus. These were the guys that left things behind to follow Jesus. They they wanted to listen to Jesus. They they did sacrifice much to be with Jesus. But in this moment where, where the woman does this, they say their first reaction is, what are you doing? This, this, the gospel of Mark doesn't make it explicit, but there's other gospels that help us see. It was the disciples who were among those aghast and frustrated that this, this was being wasted on Jesus. And the disciples misunderstood two key things. First, they misunderstood Jesus' true worth. Look at that phrase. They say, why was the ointment wasted? Why was it wasted? To them, in that moment, it felt like they had taken this ointment and poured it down the drain. Taken this ointment and just poured it out on the grass. Like, no use at all. Why was it wasted? These disciples believed that Jesus was worth sacrificing for. They believed that Jesus was valuable. But what this story reveals is there is a cap on how valuable they think Jesus is. Maybe he's worth leaving a job or transferring this or or moving some stuff around in my life, but is he worth $30,000, $40,000, $50,000 being gone in the blink of an eye? No, not that, not that. I think their first reaction is telling. You know, years ago, I remember my dad telling uh, a story about, he was trying to encourage me to persevere with my friends and how how important friendship is. And so he told me this story of how he'd had a good friend that in their adult life, they were friends, and, and, and yet because of a series of circumstances, they ended up kind of alienated from each other, and there was a coldness to that relationship and maybe even a bit of distrust between them. But the friend he knew was still in the El Paso area. And so one day, my parents were at an art gallery, and 
Uh, my mom likes to look at art sometimes, and so they're, they're there, and my dad sees this particular painting, and it reminds him of his friend. It reminds him of his friend, and he realizes how much he misses this friend. So my dad, in an unexpected moment, did not walk into that gallery expecting to purchase anything, but he walked out of that gallery with a painting. <laughs> and he took the painting and sent it to his friend with a note that basically said, I would love to reconnect. I'm so sorry for what we've lost in our friendship. And that, that painting actually really did open the door to relationship with that friend. Because what does that painting communicate? The painting in and of itself, it's, you know, if you add up the, the actual value of it, what is it? It's, it's some wood framing, a canvas thing, some color paints. It, it's not, in a sense, you could say, why would my dad take money and throw it away on a bunch of canvas and paint colors? Because in that moment, he was communicating to his friend, you are this valuable to me. You matter to me. What matters to me more than my money is my friendship with you. It was, the value of it was set and seen in the giver and the gift. And in this way, the, the, the disciples' struggle here also challenges us. What does, what does our life say about how much we value Jesus? Where are those spots in our lives where there is kind of an upper limit on how much we're going to value Jesus? Maybe you ask the question, is Jesus worth repenting of a hidden pattern of sin and going through discomfort and shame to get help? Or is it easier to just keep it hidden? Is Jesus worth reconciling with somebody you don't want to reconcile with, with all your heart, but Jesus calls you to it? Is it worth that? Is it worth changing your finances and or career and or family life? Right? Scripture says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where, where is your treasure? What are those things that you are holding on to that, that you think that's too high a price? I believe Jesus is valuable, but it's too much. It's just too much. That's what the disciples misunderstand Jesus' worth. But second, they also misunderstand Jesus' mission. Now, what they say here is not bad. They say, well, this, this, this could have been sold and used to help the poor. Now, does Jesus care about the poor? Absolutely. Does he care about the outsider? Absolutely. Far more than any other person who's ever lived but here's what the disciples did not understand. They still saw Jesus as bringing a temporal reign in Jerusalem, possibly leading an army against the Romans. And they are thinking like, okay, you know, a year ahead of themselves, 10 years maybe at the most. They didn't see too far ahead. They saw Jesus' mission as being tied up to the very specific material change in their circumstances. They missed that their view of Jesus' mission was far too Small. They, they missed that, that Jesus does care about the poor and the poor in spirit. But what he's going to do by going to the cross is not just to alleviate temporary material poverty, but eternal spiritual poverty, right? His mission is far bigger than they understand. And sometimes we misunderstand Jesus in the same way. We think, hey, man, what, what's going on doesn't make sense. Jesus leading doesn't make sense. What Jesus is allowing to happen in my life does not make sense. But we're thinking what? A year ahead, 10 years ahead. Jesus is thinking eternity. His mission is pointed at eternity. So now we arrive at the final character, Mary. Now, we know this is Mary from the other Gospels. What does Mary say about Jesus? What does this action say 
about Jesus? What does she truly think about Jesus? Look at what she says about Jesus' worth and Jesus' mission. Look at what she says about his worth. She's saying in this moment that Jesus is worth more than her dignity, right? What she, you know, her, her own sense of self, like, oh, I don't want to do that. That's too uncomfortable. What she does is unusual, strange, even offensive for a woman in her day. She humbles herself all the way to, to wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, like the, the most humbling action you could take in the ancient world. But she says, you know what? Jesus is worth more than my dignity. Jesus is worth more than Mary's reputation. She knew that by doing this, some people will just roll their eyes and call her Crazy Mary, you know? That, that there would be people that, that would whisper about how foolish and, and, and short-sighted she was. She's saying that Jesus is worth more than her prosperity. Now listen, this, this would have been the equivalent of her or maybe her family's savings account and retirement, right? This is what made them of a certain status. One of the things, and so if you look at your investment portfolio and all your assets, this is like a huge portion of it. With this out of the equation, maybe they're worth far less. Maybe she's worth far less, but she doesn't care. Jesus, she thinks, is worth more. And she thinks Jesus is worth more than her security. Remember that in first century Judea, there were no social safety nets, there was no Medicare, there was no unemployment, there was no help, there was nothing between your family and the street other than your few meager possessions guarded jealously. And in this moment, she says, no, my security for the rest of my life, Jesus is worth more than that. She also... Under, uh, says something different about Jesus' mission. Now, Watts, one of the commentators, says this, perhaps in her extravagant devotion, this woman was one of the first to sense something of who Jesus really was. These disciples, man, they've been with Jesus for three years and they still don't get it. But somehow, either through Mary's reason or through the Holy Spirit's leading, Mary, it seems, does get it, right? Because Jesus says, what she's doing is anointing me for burial. Now remember, Jesus has been telling everyone repeatedly, and they're not listening, that he's gonna die and he's gonna rise again. He's gonna be delivered over, he's gonna die, he's gonna rise again. Over and over, he repeats this. And the disciples are just kind of like, la, 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 la. You know, and Mary's listening, and she's beginning to piece things together, it appears. She's beginning to sense that his death is drawing near. And in this moment, she thinks, on this side of his death, this may be the last moment I have the opportunity to communicate this to Jesus, that my love for Jesus and how much he's worth to me. So she takes this because she understands something of Jesus' mission. Now look, this, this is... Deep, these are deep waters, but I do believe that what Mary is beginning to see is, is, is the shape of Jesus' word, okay? In John 11, when, when her brother Lazarus dies, Jesus goes to the family and he says this to her family, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
She's beginning to put these things together. She's beginning to see Jesus is predicting his death and his resurrection. And yet Jesus is saying, whoever believes in me, though he die, will live. What she's beginning to sense, perhaps, perhaps on the road in, from Jerusalem, into Jerusalem, she sees the Passover lamb walking by. And she begins to sense the shape of what is about to take place. That just as the Passover lamb was slaughtered for the sins of God's people so that they could live, just as sin always brings death and every single person who sins must face the judgment of God, she sees there's only one way to get out of that and that's a substitute. And perhaps she's beginning to put the pieces together and see he's the lamb. And it's only by his death that he can say that everyone that believes in me, yet he uh, dies, will live. That we will be buried with Christ and raised with Christ. Does she get all that? Does she read Isaiah 53? We do not know, but we know one thing. She saw Jesus' mission as far deeper than a temporal band-aid. She saw Jesus' mission as far deeper than helping some poor people for a short amount of time. She saw Jesus heading to the cross heading to his death for an eternal mission, that all those who believe in him would live. And every day in her household, when she saw her brother Lazarus at the table, the one that she had buried, now alive, And Jesus' words ringing in her ears, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he lives, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? For her, the answer was, yes, I believe it. You see, because she understands Jesus' mission, something happens in Mary's equations, right, of of what should happen in life. Mary is giving her costliest possession imaginable to the Savior. But the Savior will give far more. She understands the Savior is on a path that he will not turn back from where he will go and die that she might live. And in light of that mission, in light of that, the calculus for what Jesus is worth changes forever. Look, here's the truth, Christian. If you do not think Jesus is worth much, you don't understand what he has done for you. If Jesus, the Lord of all in Philippians 2, humbles himself, taking on the form of a servant and a human, and humbles himself even further to the point of death on the cross, if he humbles himself there for Mary, she's like, for me to be on the floor wiping his feet with my hair and to pour out the costliest possession I have, for me to do that is nothing compared to what he's done. The calculus is all different. For everyone else, what everyone else saw is Mary's giving something of almost inestimable value to Jesus for no reason. Mary's the only one in the room that sees, I've been given. I am being given something of inestimable value. Life. And in light of that, she gives all that she has. Guys, if if we understand that, it changes our calculus 
for every decision we make in life, every action we take in life. I think Mary would say with Paul in Philippians chapter 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What she does in that moment is say, I have something, I am gaining something of surpassing worth that that opens my hands to give everything else I have. Look at who Jesus is to Mary. Look at what she understands about Jesus. Jesus is Mary's dignity and reputation, not other people. There's only one person in that room that Mary really cares about what they think of her, and that is Jesus. And what he is saying is, listen, Mary, I love you. I am committed to you. I will let no one uh, uh, snatch you out of our hands. I'm going to bring you eternal life. And and, and she had a relationship with Jesus. And so, the, the man, Mary is saying, okay, look, these people are whispering. These people are snickering. I don't care. I really don't. Because that's worth far more to me. Think about her prosperity and what her family, I mean, I also, one of the things I wonder about this story is if Martha and Lazarus were in on it or if there was like a smile, 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 like, uh-oh, oh no, Mary. And Martha's going, Lazarus, is she gonna do what I think she's gonna do? And Lazarus is like, I don't know. We're, you know, like, go up and stop your sister. And, and they're thinking, that's, that's our family heirloom. That's our financial security. My, that, that's, that's what's gonna keep us safe. And, and Mary says, no, 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 no. This isn't what keeps us safe, Jesus is. This isn't what makes life worth living, Jesus is. This isn't our security, Jesus is. That's what she's saying in that moment. More than the benefits that come from Jesus, Jesus Mary loves Jesus. Mary wants Jesus as the prize. The man who raised her brother from the dead, the man who promised eternal life, the man at whose feet she sat, right? Jesus and relationship with him brings glorious secondary benefits, but to Mary, the prize was relationship with Christ. You know, I, I, as I look back on my childhood and I think about those long drives in the desert with my granddad, and how at first I didn't want to go, and how at first, and how at second, I just went for the soda and the cap guns. As I got older, I began to get something a little bit. I began to stop asking about the cap guns and the free soda. And when my mom said, do you want to go ride in the desert with your granddad, I just said yes. Because it didn't matter if we got a cap gun or a soda. I just wanted him. I wanted time with him. And so leaving behind my Legos and whatever else was not, it was not a sacrifice. What was a sacrifice was listening to Garth Brooks repeatedly down those roads. <laughs> and even that, it wasn't a Garth Brooks fan at age 10, uh, even that was not a sacrifice. And my granddad would kind of turn on Garth Brooks, they'd be silent, and he would just start singing songs on the way. You know, a lot of Elvis Presley songs, lines from other, other stuff that he knew. And I would, I would only get these half-finished songs, but he would sing them as we're driving down the road. And though the years have gone by, 
I see something else. I know that as a kid, if somebody had said, hey, do you want to go to X person's house and play video games, or do you want to spend time with your granddad, I honestly would have probably picked the video games many days. My granddad passed away a few years ago, and as the time drew closer to him passing away, I had a totally different perspective on those drives through the desert, and I began to realize that if I could, I would give anything for another drive through the desert with my grandfather. There is no thing you could have offered me in life, I don't think, that I would have picked over a drive through the desert with my grandfather. Because I finally, finally got that my grandfather was precious not because of what he brought me and not because I didn't have anything better going on. He was precious because of who he was. And I, as he passed away, I at one point was in his room and I just began to sing the songs that he sang in the truck back to him. And I don't know if he heard it. And listen, man, that is a sacrifice for me because I cannot sing. Like, despite the fact that my last name is Alcantar, I cannot do it. The thing, that the one thing I'm supposed to be able to do is as a Alcantar, yeah, right? And so, you know, I'm, I'm, war, I'm, I'm, and he had a great voice in many ways, and I'm warbling all over the place. And in that moment, I don't care. I don't care what other people think about me. I don't care what it, what, what, you know, what this makes me sound like. I don't care because in that moment, the thing I wanted to do was say, this is how precious you are to me. That is what Mary is doing. She is going before Jesus and saying, this is how precious you are to me. She does not know what will happen next. She knows he's likely on the road to his death, and she wants to say, this is how precious you are to me. And notice this. This is so important, guys. Mary does not do this so Jesus will go on the, to the cross and save her. Mary does this because she knows he's going to the cross. Mary does this because she knows that somehow what he's going to do is going to purchase for her eternal life. So it's done out of an overflow of what Jesus has done for her. It's not, I'm going to do this, Jesus, and maybe you'll be kinder to me. It's look at what you've done to me. For me, this is what Mary is communicating. Let me just say, if we, if we get this, our calculus changes. But I want to read a quote from Danny Aiken, one of the commentators on this passage, and he, he challenges us with this. He says this, the world, and sadly many in the church, will never have a problem with moderate, measured devotion to Christ. They will have little to no problem with too many possessions and a pursuit of a comfortable, convenient Christianity, but walk away from a, quote, real career and you will be marked as foolish, living a wasted life. Walk away from mom and dad to serve the Lord in an inner city in America among the poor and hurting. You will be deemed silly and impractical. Walk away from family and friends to head out to the mission field among an unreached people group, taking your small children with you, and you will be chided as reckless, radical, even imbalanced. And here's what I love about that word imbalanced because I think if you, get, if you get where Mary is, if you are there and you see the worth of Jesus and everything else you may have to get up, give up for him, you see, no, 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 you're the ones who are imbalanced, right? The balance is all that Jesus has done and this is what I can do. So that phrase is, is she has done what she 
could. Jesus is not asking for more than Mary can do. Look, Jesus is offering this. He's not asking Mary for that. He, he, Mary can't give him that. Instead, he's asking, what can you do? She has done what she could do. He similarly commends the, the, the woman, the old woman who gives the last of her copper coins to the, to the temple. He says, this is, this is, this is what I'm talking about. They, they're willing to give what they can do, but there's also a challenge there. Are we giving what we can? And if you're like me, you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And you have in your, the big scope of your life, you have carved out a religious part of your life, right? And you're like, Jesus, listen, man, sky's the limit. You can have anything in here, right? It's like when you go to Peter Piper and you have like 100 tickets. And so, you know, there's all these prizes. And then the person, you know, counts up your tickets and says, see all these prizes? You can have anything in here, right? <laughs> and you're like, could I have the paper airplane? No. I said anything from here to here, little buddy, you know, and you're like, but what about, no, right here, right? Sometimes that's what we do with the Lord. We say, okay, Lord, you can have literally anything in here, right? What Mary is doing is she's saying, Jesus, you can have anything, period. So let me just ask you, friend, is there an area of your life where you're, Jesus is calling you to give it up for something better? Don't delay. And if you don't know Jesus, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you with the words of Paul that Jesus is of surpassing worth. Look, in the first century, Christians made no sense to the Romans because the Roman religion was all about like the here and now. And the afterlife was kind of like, yeah, whatever, we'll go down to Hades and hang out. I don't know. The Roman religion was all about the here and now, all about the here and now. So when Christians, when Ro when Christians died in Rome and refused to recant their faith, it made absolutely no sense to the Romans because they're like, why wouldn't you extend your life by 10 years? Why wouldn't you go free? Why would you give that up? And the Christian after Christian after Christian said, like Mary, he is of surpassing worth. What areas would Christ call you to live that way? Now, we're gonna take communion so I want to encourage you to go ahead and take the, uh, the elements that are near you. And if you are a Christian, if you believed in Christ, we would love to uh, have you participate in this family meal with us. But I love in God's providence that we're taking communion today because we have a tangible illustration and reminder of what Jesus has given us. Look, this, this part of, of Mark that we're about to head into, we're going to head into it for a couple weeks and then we'll finish it in the new year. This part of Mark we're going to head into is all about what Jesus has done to save sinners like us, what Jesus has given for sinners like us. And so I want to invite you to take the, the cup and the bread. And first, go ahead and take the bread in your hand. In communion, the bread represents the body of Christ. It, it represents him humbling himself to humanity and humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross, as Philippians 2 would say. So let's just take a quiet moment and thank the Lord for what he has given us. Let's do that, and then you can take that bread when you're ready. Lord, we are astounded by what you have given us. You've given us your very body. Oh, 
You say, this is my body given for you. Oh, Lord, may that fill our hearts. Amen. Please take the cup in your hand. And the cup represents the blood of Jesus shed for us. There's even a similarity in Scripture, some of the language about what Mary pours out over Jesus and what Jesus pours out over his people. Take it in your hand and just take a quiet moment and thank the Lord for his blood shed for you. Please take the cup. And Lord, we thank you for your blood shed for us. We thank you for the surpassing worth of Christ. God, you offer us security better than the world offers. You offer us prosperity better than the world offers. You offer us uh, relationship better than the world offers us. So Lord, I pray that this morning, as Christians, we would have the grace to identify those areas and be willing to say, Lord, what can we do as a love offering for what you've done for us? And I pray for anyone that doesn't know Christ, is not yet committed to follow Christ. I pray this would be the Sunday, God, you would put, you'd touch their hearts and you would help them see the imbalance, help them see the surpassing worth of Christ. That they would repent of sins, turn to trust in you, and join the followers of Jesus today. Amen. Now you may stand. We're going to sing a closing song. And as we sing, uh, here's what I want to encourage you to do, okay? We sing this song a lot. And one of the things that, that happens when we sing songs a lot is that we just sing them. You know, they just kind of roll in our heads. But this song contains a truth that I think we tie to Mark 14. When we sing, Jesus is better, we are declaring something. And so I want to encourage you, Christian, declare this today, and if you don't yet feel it, that's the next line, make my heart believe. Because like I said, if Jesus doesn't seem worth everything to you yet, it's because you don't fully know Jesus yet. Because if you knew Jesus, you would know it's worth it. Similarly, if I could go back 13 years ago where I was dating my wife, Jen, and I'm sitting in my room wondering if buying the $300 ticket is worth it, I would go back in time and slap myself and say, dummy, buy the tickets, right? Surpassing worth. So as we sing, think of the surpassing worth of Christ.